Welcome everybody to episode 30 of the Auto Movie Podcast, where we talk about cars in movies and TV and online and all of that fun stuff. I'm Chris Ratcliffe, and with me as always is... The Prince of Pace Notes, the Impressor of Impressors, and the man who puts the R into driving on gravel. It's Martin Spain. <laughs> Do we have the rights to use propaganda's jewel there? We do, well, we do now. No <laughs> That's a great intro. Uh, this is all apropos of me having done a rally course at the Bilguin Rally School uh, over the weekend, which was great fun. I got to slide an impreza around for most of a very hot day uh, and pretend <laughs> like I was Colin McRae, even though I probably didn't breach 30 miles an hour. Uh, very good fun. If you want to do it, then highly recommended. But yes, not really a rallyist, but I do enjoy watching a bit of rallying and uh, occasionally indulging in some slidey, slidey action. This is episode 30. It is the first episode back after our lengthy summer break. I had a nice holiday in Portugal before all the Brits turned up and spoiled it all. How about you? <laughs> um, I spent a weekend in a bit of Lincolnshire and I must have done other things, but I don't know. The world just kind of passed me by for a month. It's been a month and a bit now. We're back. It's September and we have many, many news things because... Things have sort of started happening again. So what have you been watching? Well, let's start with something that we talked about in the last episode before our break, which was the races that stopped the world. This was a Jaguar documentary that had been sitting on a shelf and our friend of the show, Al Clark, basically unpacked it, re-edited it and got it up onto Sky Documentaries, amongst other places. And I've got to say, it was a really interesting fun documentary i haven't seen this yet i really i'm sad to say that my sky subscription is so pokey that it only includes <laughs> the very basic bogo standard channels and sky sports f1 in ultra hd 4k dolby surround but no other channels that i have such a poor subscription <laughs> i don't have sky documentaries so i've not been able to see this because i don't think it's available online anywhere it's not yet. So the the premise of the documentary is looking at how Jaguar introduced the disc brakes, taking it from an aviation technology, putting it onto racing cars, talking with Sterling Moss, with Norman Dewis, uh, with other people who are both sort of contemporary and um, of-the-time motorsport people. And there were a few things that, that really, really struck me about it. One was that it was a great tale of innovation. It was people that could clearly see a benefit. And I think people like you and I, Marty, I mean, we're not the youngest people in the world, but we forget sometimes how bad racing cars used to be. We kind of assume that disc brakes have always been around. but Because they have. You start... Well, as far as we're concerned. Although that's true. Actually, while I was on holiday, the rental car I had was a brand spanking new... 200 miles on the clock, Ford Puma Hybrid, and it had Ooh. drum brakes on the rear. Really? Yep. Discs on the wow. front, tiny little drum brakes on the rear. So, yeah, we've always assumed disc brakes are around, but drum brakes, I think I learned to drive in a car that had drum brakes on, So, <laughs> and I'm not that old. I really aren't. Despite what Chris says, we are not that ancient. But, yes, you get used to modern technology, cars working all the time, disc brakes being around, then carbon ceramic brakes, and you forget mm. that there was a time when cars, specifically racing cars, didn't stop on a sixpence. That thing also, makes me sound even worse. The old stop on a six. <laughs> no one uses sixpence when racing cars didn't just stop at the fifty meter board. Yes. Oh, very much so. And also, bear in mind, during the course of this, they talked to people like Jackie Stewart and Derek Bell in particular, who were racing at Le Mans. And can you imagine going down the Molson, even what probably still in excess of 200 I'd have thought having to nurse the brakes so that by the end of the Mulsanne straight without the chicanes yes I can imagine exactly what that's like I'll tell you what it's like it's like driving an E46 M3 down the back straight at Bedford <laughs> you know what that's actually true. I, I, I even overcut the brakes at Blyton, and Blyton is basically the smallest circuit I've ever driven on, and I still managed to cut them. Anyway, that's a lot, another story. This documentary, it's beautifully shot. I mean, the production is really great. It's about 40 minutes long, 
which actually is a really nice length because it tells the story. It's not overly long, but it has enough that it fleshes it out, the fleshes out the characters. And it also talks about some of the problems that they had, some of the issues about taking something that was designed for aviation where you stop once per flight and then suddenly you're applying that to stop after stop after stop. You've got to get the weight down. You've got to create the pads. You know, you've actually got to create the technology because it's not just the concept of pushing a piston against a disc. It's what pad material do you use? How big are they? What should the disc be made out of? All of these things. And they talk about it in that beautifully stoic, British engineering you know men in brown overcoats sort of drawing on <laughs> yeah. tracing paper and they, they they're so beautifully honest about it i really enjoyed it were I, they northern were they holding cups of tea while they were in oh, their brown overcoats oh no 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 Jaguar, West Midlands. Oh, God, the brummies are back. <laughs> but yes, I, I really, really want to see this. And I was very dismayed when I found out that my Sky subscription did not include documentaries. Uh, I haven't actually been asked to phone them up and, and sort it out because they keep telling me that they have a telephone queuing system that's a mile long. But <laughs> I think I might have to because I really want to see this. I, it's a shame that it's not been made available online. I think but, it will be. I think yeah, I think you're right. I think it will eventually. be. But I'm really excited. I'm really pleased for Al that he managed to be able to get this finished and out. And I think it's met with a pretty good reception. So if mm. you have Sky Documentaries, then you should watch The Races That Stop the World. We also talked in a previous episode about Beers for Builds and their Eleanor... What was it? Um, an Eleanor on a new chassis that yeah, actually it's they, wasn't. It's, it's their Eleanor 1967 Mustang Resto Mod, where they took a 1970, it's 1967 Mustang and a 2015 Mustang and took the Eleanor bits off the old car and stuck them onto the chassis of the new car after removing the body of the new car. Uh, and there was a follow-up on this by Donut Media on YouTube who goes into the specifics of the legal issue surrounding this build. And it all really boils down to the fact that Chris from Beers for Build referred to his build as an Eleanor Mustang. If he'd called it Fred or Jeff, he would have been fine. But specifically referring to his Mustang as an Eleanor Mustang is what triggered the IP and the lawyers and him ultimately having the car project seized. Um... It's nasty stuff. The Donut Media piece is very entertaining. It's very informative. It's not very long. So if you are curious as to the ins and outs of copyright law as it pertains to <laughs> names of cars, believe it or not, it's worth a watch. And I know that makes it sound very dry and dull. It's not. It's worth a watch. <laughs> this was a really interesting build, and I'm very sad that it didn't get to be finished because mm. I think it was on the path to being something quite original, and with you know, not too many YouTube automotive people were doing this kind of thing, which is what set mm. Chris's channel apart. Uh, Beers for Bill have since moved on to create a similar one with a different Mustang, but they've not called it Eleanor. Yes. And done a kind of rat rot thing. Uh, it, I haven't looked at that one special. particularly. Yeah, but, you know, he's taken the experience from that and, and moved on. But, yes, if you are intrigued into seeing what happened, then the Donut Media video is worth a watch, and we'll link it in the show notes. It also talks about the other replica cars that have come and gone in from various franchises. And one of the ones that was really interesting was the Ghostbusters Ecto-1 community, as well as the DeLorean Time Machine Club. Yes, that was really interesting because he highlights the difference between the miserable, money-grubbing spoil sports <laughs> that own the rights to the Eleanor name as it pertains to 1967 Mustangs and compares that to Bob Gale and Universal and their handling of the community around the Back to the Future DeLorean, where they seem content to just let people build replicas. And ultimately, it pays them back because, as Chris has talked about in a previous show, when Universal found out that the original hero car for Back to the Future had just been left out in the studio tour in the rain for years, and they wanted to recommission it for the, was it the 25th anniversary? Yeah. The 20th anniversary? They wanted to recommission it. They turned to this community of hobbyists to find out where they could find 
find all the parts and to help them recommission this car. And that wouldn't have happened had they sat and enforced their legal right for shutting, you know, to shut down people who were building, um, you know, DeLorean time machine replicas. They just mm. let it happen because ultimately it benefits them. You know, more people are excited about the franchise for longer. They go and buy these 25th edition reissues and stuff. It's not just one miserable old lady trying to protect her pension pot, which is basically copywriting one name against an old car. Mm. So, yes, I. the other ones that I mentioned were, um, the, you, you mentioned the Ghostbusters Ecto-1, which I didn't, I haven't seen the video on that one, to be honest. I, the video also covers the Batmobile uh, replicas from like the 1960s Adam West series onto the Tim Burton series uh, mm. and how the copyright was applied slightly differently to those and companies sprung up to build replicas. Um, tell me about the Ecto-1, because I can't imagine that's particularly difficult to rebuild. It It is difficult because there was... First of all, it was built on an ambulance... And there aren't a lot of those. It was an ambulance rehearse. I think it was an ambu- a Cadillac ambulance. There was also... It had that same kit-bashing mentality that the back panel of the DeLorean had. So Loads of aircraft it, parts. Exactly. It's all military surplus and it's capacitors and it's connectors and it's hoses. And then also you've got the internals as well. So people will go out and they'll find the... They'll build the right rig. They'll find the right seat configuration and and all that sort of stuff. But again, Sony had a car that they wanted to get back into use for the uh, promotion of the film that shall not be named. And that was partly going back to source. But again, uh, to the company who actually made the original or one of the cinema vehicles companies... But it was also partly fan-driven as well. And then they chucked a load of Sony audio gear in it and spoiled it. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, I haven't seen Moving that one, but it on. sounds interesting. Moving on, there is a new series on Apple TV Plus uh, mm. called Long Way Up, which I'm guessing is something to do with Ewan McGregor and Charlie Borman. It is. It is. It is. This has made me very, very, very. This very is your happy. wheelhouse. I don't. I've never watched the long way up, down, left, right, sideways. <laughs> I've never watched any of them. I'm aware that they get on bikes, but bikes, especially bikes like this, are so far out of my wheelhouse that I've never mm. really sat down and watched them. However, Chris loves them, as I remember when he went chasing after Charlie Borman while we were at the Goodwood Festival of Speed one I day. Did. Going, I did. Mr. Gorman, please sign my book. Please, I love you. <laughs> Disclaimer: Some of this may not be true. <laughs> so this is a follow-up to 2004's Long Way Around. My God, that was a long time ago. When Hugh McGregor and Charlie Bowen rode from London to New York the long way around, hence the name. I have watched this so, 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 so many times. And watching it more recently, or at least watching some of it more recently, one of the things that really struck me was the poor video quality by contemporary standards. I will absolutely caveat that by saying this was the best it was in 2004. If you wanted a lipstick camera and a helmet, it was as good as it got. Um, But the world has moved on and we've now got GoPros and all that sort of thing. So the long way up is a motorcycle ride from Ushuaia in Argentina through South and Central America to LA it features Hugh McGregor and Charlie Borman on the bikes. It features David Alex- uh, Alexandian, I think, Alexandian, Russ Malkin. Um, basically, if you've watched the original, all of the crew is back. So it's the same director, producer, the main camera people are the same. It's the whole shebang. Now, there's a couple of things that make this different. One is that... I'm I'm guessing if they're starting in Ushuaia, none of the number plates are going to be uh, Damn it, you stole my gag. <laughs> I was going to say that. Uh, for those um, who are not aware, go and watch the Top Gear um, Argentina special. Oof, oof. So this, there's a couple of things with this. One is that it's only three episodes long, as far as I can see. Three 45-minute episodes, whereas the other ones ran to, I think, 12 episodes and then they got a longer uncut version however they're doing it on motorcycles they're doing it on harley davidson's and they're doing it on electric harley davidson's so they're going the entire length of south and central america 
on battery power. That's what you're assuming. That's why there's only three episodes, because the batteries ran out. <laughs> well, th- there's a couple of things there. One is the, is the battery side. The other is, from what I've seen of Argentina in Top Gear, um, in the, well, several Top Gear specials, I think it was Bolivia's down that way, isn't it? Um, and also, if you watched Race Across the World, the last series, Complete tangent, but very, very good series. It's quite harsh in places. This is not a gentle cruise down the highway on a Harley Davidson. So I'm kind of intrigued to see how just how they cope with it. How much is the electric side an issue? Is the chemistry there? Is it getting the band back together and everybody's tight and everybody's sort of back in it? Or is this going to be the one where the band hasn't played together for a while and everyone's a bit out of tune and I don't know. I'm I'm really looking forward to it. I think if nothing else, it will be beautifully shot. I think it'll be a really interesting thing to follow from a automotive side, from a technology point of view, just see how they cope with the journey. And yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. And I think um, it could be a really interesting series, but if it's only... Three episodes of 45 minutes. If it's not, it won't be the biggest loss in the world. Speaking of new series as well, Sky F1 and Formula One management have released a new series called Race to Perfection, which is on Sky Documentaries and the Sky F1 channel. Ah, so I should be able to see this one. You should. I think it's certainly, well, it's certainly being scheduled um, as well as I think on demand. So this is a little bit different. This is a seven-episode series. Each episode is an hour long, and they have trawled the F1 archives to find new things. They've done new interviews. They've cleaned up footage. I've One thing I've got to say before we, do, before we talk about anything else, we've seen quite a few documentaries recently, and I'm thinking particularly like Ferrari's Race to Immortality, Formula One have done a lot of work cleaning up vintage footage. There is stuff in this that looks amazing. Ironically, the stuff from the 60s and the 70s that's shot on film that's gone through the restoration looks great. The stuff where it's like the 90s and it's Prost and Senna and it's all shot on video. Yeah, there's there's no latitude there, is there? No. Film, film is very forgiving and you can pull a ton of detail out of a 35mm frame or even a 16mm frame. Mm. But video at 576 lines or whatever is just, there's nothing there. The data's just not stored. Especially, I mean, again, because Marty and I are old, we knew the pleasures of getting up at five in the morning to watch the Japanese Grand Prix on this transcoded CCAM signal, and it was nothing else looked like the Japanese Grand Prix. Anyway, so (laughs) this this is very true. I'd forgotten all about that. And we're still not that old. You stopped saying it like we're all (laughs) 90. Coming soon to TikTok, the Auto Movie Podcast. No, 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 no. Um, So this series that they are releasing episodically it's not one where you can go and binge and it was put together by somebody who has well so when the credits rolled the first credits that came up were for the editors and the producers one of whom and the, the main sort of director and producer is somebody who's kind of made their name in sports broadcasting So not a documentarian, somebody who has come up through Eurosport and through the Sky ranks and is now working in Sky F1. And it has this kind of introduction about, imagine the opening of The Secret Race Across America, but not as good. (laughs) And it's this kind of generic opening. And then John Watson, who really doesn't cover himself in glory... He has that old man thing where he goes, young people today don't know anything about the history of Formula One. Blah, 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 blah. And they start talking about Fangio. And over the course of an hour, plus adverts, they go through the greats of Formula One. So they talk about Fangio. They talk about, uh, who else do they talk about? You know, Sterling Moss, Senna, Mansell, Prost, um, PK, Emerson uh, Fittipaldi. And they sort of go through them chronologically, unlike I did, because I have no memory. And they're all very 
interesting and they kind of flow from one person to the next and you kind of go up to the modern day and they're talking about Hamilton but I found it quite a disjointed experience simply because while each vignette is good and you could watch any one of those and if somebody said here's seven minutes about Sterling Moss you'd watch and go oh that's quite good but they don't tell you what that episode's about nothing tells you what it's about it just starts going through all these people with no thread to link them apart from the passage of time. They have some really good, like I say, contemporary interviews. They archive footage. My God, those researchers have earned their money because it's not only F1 footage. They're, in the credits, it credited Beauty Motor Museum. Pathé News got a credit. Oh, is there Pathé Man? Is there Pathé Man documenting the <laughs> you know, commentary? Here we are, here we are. <laughs> Silverstone, for the 1957 Grand Prix. And here is a man with tweed trousers and a thin moustache. What was it? I, what was it I was watching the other day? There was this kind of... It was that exact voice. And they had um, clips of wives, girlfriends, attractive women in the pits... And it was kind of like, "Core, she's a bit of hot stuff. And you're like, what? I read an article somewhere, I can't remember where it was, on how Formula One has lost the glamour. And what they were trying to say is Formula One has lost hot women hanging around the pits. And we pointed to the kind of 60s and 70s where you had all the wives and girlfriends of the drivers hanging around the pits doing the timing. Mm. Uh, And then some cursory bit about the grid girls and so on. And, oh, no, it's such a shame they've gone. And... Most normal people going, what are you talking about? It's a terrible piece of journalism. But I can yeah. see if you go back, the, everything does seem impossibly glamorous because there's no barriers, there's no safety. Mm. People are just hanging around. And the pits aren't even really pits. They're just like concrete sheds. And the pit wall is literally a wall. Well, that's the thing. If you go back far enough, the the pits weren't actually a wall it was a line down the side of the straight and you just pull over to the side of the road and people would jump on the anyway yeah so race to perfection an interesting bit of production i'm kind of interested to see what happens through the next six episodes is each one you wondering whether or not each one is going to be okay we've done the bit where we tell you all about the champions so now we're going to talk about the tracks or now we're going to talk about the safety or now we're going to talk or about the cars or the cars so but without that introductory i don't know maybe you could do it in voiceover maybe you do it with Mm. a presenter i don't know how you'd cope i'm gonna have to go and watch this to see um i noticed that uh, matt bishop ex-press officer for mclaren general f1 good guy Mm. was tweeting how much he enjoyed it and possibly that is because of this archive footage friend of the podcast matt langis watched it and said it's a bit disjointed and messy and i think you probably have a similar opinion of it i think all it lacks is a title card it's as simple as that. All it needs is something to go, you know, chapter one, the heroes. And you go, oh, okay, we're now talking about all these drivers. Although and heroes I, and Mansell and PK. Well, uh, but yes, I know, know what you mean. The champions, the let's call them. Yeah. But without that, it's, like I say, it's John Watson being grumpy. Then they talk about all these great drivers. They keep reverting back to, there's a particular style of, talking of presentation that always makes me feel that it's one of those sky bits of vt where they're talking about how great formula one is or how you should tune in and how you should watch all this sort of thing towards the end it really does break into this thing of you know this is what's made formula one great for all the all these past seasons and hopefully for many more to come and it only you know coming to you exclusively on sky one yeah i can hear i can practically hear martin brundle delivering the closing dialogue to camera Mm. whilst walking down the final turn at brazil or somewhere like that um it is a kind of house style that i think to be fair the BBC pioneered when they picked up the rights from ITV back in 97 or whenever it was, or when, when did, whenever they picked them up. And then the Beeb showed everyone how modern motorsport coverage could be mm. with Jake Humphrey and the sort of extended intro and these VT films. And then the, mm. the my favourite bit, which Sky don't really do, was the sort of forum after the, the race where you had an interaction with the presenters who would then ask your questions to whoever they grabbed. And that was, you know, at its peak, 
during the 2009 season when Jensen Button won and you had that kind of crazy extended outro to the race where Jensen's all wide-eyed and it's, it's <laughs> dark and he's got cameras pointing at his face and Jake Humphrey and the whole BBC team are there sharing it with him and bringing it to you mm. on your screen. And it felt very personal and it felt like you had access to the pit lane. And the Sky coverage has never quite recaptured that, even though they've done some great films and great stuff. Mm. So I can see how this might feel a little bit uh, overproduced with that kind of narration. However, it's only one episode. Uh, yep. I haven't even seen it, so I'm commenting on something. I'm, <laughs> I, I'm trusting on third-party opinions here. I'll try and see it between now and the next time we pod and we can catch up on what the next few episodes have been like. Let's move away from motorsport and go to the subject of this episode and probably some coming episodes. We're going to do a Fast and Furious marathon rewatch. Except we're not going to do it all at once because, you know, we've got lives and and our eyeballs won't take all that Dom (laughs) and Brian and stuff. But we are going to go back through all of the Fast and Furious movies, rewatching with a bit of thought. We have reviewed a couple on the podcast before. Chris and I chose our favourites and we will probably re-review them because why the hell not? But in this case, we're going to go back to the beginning. We're going to go back to The Fast and The Furious. Chris, tell me about this movie. The Fast and the Furious. The first one. The origin story. We're not going to recap the plot of these in any great detail because particularly the Fast and the Furious... You've all seen Point Break, right? (laughs) (laughs) So Fast and the Furious was a film kind of derived from an article called Racer X that was all about street racing. Not the excellent band with Paul Gilbert from Mr Big. There is a super niche reference for Guitar Heroes amongst you. (laughs) us nerdy never the plot is brian o'connor is a undercover police officer trying to infiltrate a gang who are using honda civics to steal blu-ray player no they're dvd DVD players players. yes no such thing as blu-ray when this was made my friend and he is going out street racing and they're doing street racing and that's where he meets Vin Diesel and his crew and they go Dominic off Toretto, do... come on. You at least try and use the character Dominic names. Toretto. You just look at it and go, that's Vin Diesel. <laughs> hey man. So I, he was in my face. <laughs> <laughs> that's so much funnier as a meme. Yeah, it's very difficult to get that one across. We're gonna put a link to an image in the show notes, which never, <laughs> never fails to make me laugh. Uh, so coming to this, what I tried to do was come to it as almost a kind of objective observer. So I've, I've seen this film, I saw it at the cinema, I've seen it so many times since, as have a lot of you, I'm sure. The thing that I really came away from this film thinking was, one, there's actually a lot of influence, I think, from Gone in 60 Seconds, Particularly at first, the colour grading is, it's in, you know, it's proper golden hour, everything's bright orange. They do some really nice sort of camera tricks where they do time lapses to sort of show the passage of time between scenes and things like that. But the special effects generally are generally very good, but they feel a little bit dated now. The thing that really came, came across with the characters and with the, with the plot of the film was how small it is. And what I mean by that is, when they're talking about the heists that these people are doing, they're like, they've stolen $6 million worth of stuff. I'm sure in some of the later films, you know, the, the, the cars are worth $6 million, let alone the thing they're actually stealing. So almost the stakes are quite low. The cars are all really attainable. And one of the things that I was thinking about was um, when I reviewed Need for Speed, because that was what, a McLaren P1 and... Yeah, there was a... Uh, there's Sesto Elemento and a bunch of other one. stuff. Now, in preparation for this, I actually did some research. The te- One of the technical advisors on the film is a guy called Craig Lieberman, who's literally written the book about the behind-the-scenes of Fast and Furious, and he was involved in the first and second films as a technical consultant. And he's done... A lot of videos on YouTube, we'll put a link to his his, uh, channel in the show notes, where he talks about what they had to do to get the cars in and what their restrictions were. So, for example, he said they had $2 million for all the cars, the maintenance, 
transportation, everything. Everything had to be done in $2 million. All of the hero cars were borrowed from other people. So he basically had these casting calls where he'd say, right, if you've got a 300ZX, bring it down, we'll pick the one that we want to be in the film. If you've got an RX-7, come down, we'll pick the one that we want to be in the film. And they would borrow somebody's car, they would make three replicas of it for stunt purposes and for as a, as a backup, essentially. And every car that they used, both things like the Civics, the, um, the, the replicas of these modified cars, all had to be widely available in the US and reasonably priced. And they had to have enough of a market for parts that they weren't custom building stuff. So everything that they made, so like the Supra, for example, it was actually Craig Lieberman's Supra that Paul Walker's driving. They then had to make three more. So they had to go out and buy the same body kits, paint it the same colour, put stuff in like that. And that was all that kind of went into it. So the Civics were all bought off eBay and Autotrader. Dominic Toretto's Charger was a custom build from a company called Cinema Vehicle Services in California. But all the rest were just really ordinary cars. I mean, they kind of pepped them up a bit. They made them a pretty colour and they put the lurid graphics down the side. But they weren't overly you know excessive they they were things that you could have in your garage and all the conversations that go on are conversations that you would have potentially with your mates there's some of the, some absolute clangers in the dialogue but it's all really you know friendly and familiar and it's the kind of nonsense that car people talk to each other watching it back as well the, also the, the the plot's really good the stakes the way that the the kind of the action plays out is really nicely measured. Things happen for a reason. It's obviously been thought about. It's obviously been kind of cared for. But remember, this was a film that was done with no expectations. It was relatively low budget. I mean, the budget for the whole thing was $38 million, which at the time, you know, a basic movie would be $40 million or so. The choice of actors was great. I think... Paul Walker as that kind of almost not quite James Dean, but he almost has that kind of bit of a, a um, Paul Newman or Steve McQueen in his kind of um, in his pomp kind of persona to him. And when you meet Dominic Toretto at the street racing, he is that character. He is the one that, as Mia says, has a gravity to him. He has authority. He can be charismatic he's people look up to him and they respect him and you get it and i think vin diesel was a cracking bit of casting for this because you can't imagine many other actors coming into a role where they have to be so charismatic and attractive that people flock to them and there are these these moments where he's talking about the charger and his dad there's the moment when brian reveals to him that he's actually an undercover cop and it's it's really affecting and it you know those moments really do sort of carry a weight with them there are certain clichés that the fast and the furious have which are absolutely present in that first film the corona which looks like product placement isn't the you want to go a bit faster so you change gear and you put your foot down that's all there they do have a great graphic moment where they basically link somebody's hand on the gear knob to the shift knob to the gearbox to following nos from the bottle into the combustion chamber and you know this explosion even the drag racing scene so the famous one where it's a 10 second race that goes on for over two minutes even that some of the cg is a bit pokey but it kind of actually works if you think of it in the sense of let's slow down time to the point that we can kind of have a race and we can see people going back and forth and we can see what all the characters are doing. Otherwise, it'd be over in a blink of an eye. And apparently, somebody worked out if it was actually a race for that long, their quarter mile would have been 8.6 miles of racing. It's true. I, I've, I've said this before. I always struggle with the depiction of skill in quarter mile drag racing. I always, and correct me if I'm wrong, illegal street races. 
Isn't this just mashing your foot on the accelerator and then hoping you don't fluff a gear change? Steering straight ahead is not hard. Pushing a button to deliver the NOS is not hard. All the work is building a car that doesn't explode and suffer danger to manifold. Oh, God, that. (laughs) The graphics in this, this the smacks of studios going, hey, we need a thing to tell the audience something's going wrong. Therefore, we will have a computer in the side and it will flash danger to manifold and then the floor pan will fall off. (laughs) So let's talk about things that are wrong with it everything because everything, everything. no no that's that's not fair the, there are some glaring things that the floor pan falling off during a drag race for no good reason i was actually watching one of craig liebman's videos earlier and he points out it when they go to race wars the jetta when that launches it's a stunt car so if you look if you actually freeze frame the car as it pulls away from the line it has no front brake calipers because it's a stunt car, they've put fake discs over the actual <laughs> discs and brakes. But the really glaring one for me is the scene where Dominic's charger flips. If you look at the Supra as it's going underneath and it pulls up to a stop, there is a clearly visible roll cage, which is not there in any other scene. I, You know what? I have never seen that. But if I think back to obvious fluffs, I'm thinking of Need for Speed again, where they jump that Mustang, and it mysteriously goes from its impeccably machined 21-inch alloys to a set of off-road tyres they probably nicked off of a Ford Explorer (laughs) as it's doing its jump, and then it lands and it's back on the 21s again. And that's so glaring to me. Um, Mm. I didn't notice too much here. You're kind of too busy watching the Charger fall to bits in the way of all American muscle cars. (laughs) Sorry, American muscle fans. The, the, The really glaring things for me... I think are a few missteps that the film makes in tone. So, for example, when Dominic comes back from being rescued by Brian from the from the cops chasing them, he comes back to some sort of strip club come house party that's full of dancing girls for some reason. But the thing that I think it does really well is that there are things that happen in the film that are done practically. So... I'm thinking when Vince is stuck to the lorry and he's got this steel cable wrapped round his bloody arm and he's hanging off the side of this lorry as the, the driver's trying to shoot him. All of that sequence, all of that sequence is brilliant and suspenseful mm. and because it's all been done practically, because they had to, they didn't have money to do loads of CG, it works mm. gangbusters. And the end of it where Brian O'Connor reveals himself to be a cop works it's probably the best bit of acting that Paul Walker does in the movie. And let's be Mm. generous. He's there for his looks, not his acting talent. Yep. But that bit works. It's always worked for me. I really enjoy that. Just the practical stuff all around. The stuff that clangs is anything with Johnny. Is it Johnny Chan? The guy in the S2000, that all of that is, is just terrible. Um, But that's 2001. Uh, The stuff, this worked because at the time, we hadn't had a great car film for a very long time. And so car fans went to see this in their droves because we were like, oh, my God, shiny cars and, you know, attract <laughs> attractive people and street races that never looked like this in real life. But I'm quite willing to be, in you know, sucked into the fantasy of it all with the neons and the scantily clad women who wouldn't be seen dead near an open bonnet, <laughs> let alone crawling all over it. Um, and also, you, you do have what's... I'm trying to remember who uses the phrase now. I suspect it might be Will Wheaton or possibly even Patrick Stewart of the techno babble. So when they open a bonnet and they kind of go, oh, you've got a Garrett T66 Turbo there and an Apex fuel controller and you've got... And it's just this reading off this list of... Things that Craig Lieberman told them to say. Probably. It always but, sounds... It, there's a degree of skill as an actor in delivering technobabble and making it sound like you know what you're talking about and that your character knows what it's talking about, knows mm. what they're talking about. And this only works sometimes in the movies. But you're right, the... This this film revolves around the the sort of blue-eyed optimism of Brian O'Connor and the the, the gravelly magnet magnetism, that's not a word, um, <laughs> of Dominic Toretto. It, Vin Diesel, you're right. It, you can't imagine anyone else in that role. And you probably can't really imagine anyone else playing Brian O'Connor now, although it, mm. it, maybe it could have gone to other actors, but it helps enormously that Paul Walker was a petrol head. And that some of the, you know, he he wanted the idea of doing something to do with 
with racing and and cars and I get the impression anytime he's delivering stuff and providing it's not too clangy and dialogue wise, <laughs> it seems to work. Um, I this film's very charming. It's got film grain, actual film grain on it. Yeah. Um, yep. Practical stunts. There's some stuff that doesn't work. Like the whole idea, I seem to remember after they get away from the police after that first street race. And Dominic gets a ride with Brian and Brian's throwing the car around corners and Dom's all holding onto the thing and looking nervous. That's supposed to be because all Dominic knows how to do is drive in a straight line. And any kind of police pursuit driving, as Brian O'Connor is supposed to be demonstrating, makes him uncomfortable. However, they filmed it so poorly, this is not... um, you know, Tanner Faust drifting a Porsche around the streets or anything like mm. that. This it just looks clumsy and crap because the car mm. is is not it doesn't want to drift, and that's that bit. That's me lifting. I think from mm. a, a long ago director's commentary on a DVD. That bit never worked <laughs> for me. I've never felt like. Brian O'Connor was an equal of the others in terms of driving skill. In that mm, first one, no. he feels like he knows nothing about cars and he's doing this because he likes the idea of the shiny and he fancies Mia Toretto, which is probably close True. to the truth. He's never felt like the latter films are where he becomes a petrol head as part of this one. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I, I did notice as well watching it is actually how quotable this film is. You've got, you know, I live my life a quarter mile at a time. <laughs> You almost had me. You never had me. You never had your car. <laughs> Things like, um, you know, having a 10-second car. Hey, man, he was in my face. <laughs> the overnighting parts from Japan, the... I need Noz, Harry. Yeah, the CAD file showing the Supra. Um, <laughs> I think now it's at the stage where it's all just nostalgic. Um, mm. And there's a joy in watching that. It's... I still like it. I know it's cheesy. I know it's probably hugely inaccurate, even for a time when these things were actually happening. But that doesn't stop me liking it. And it was such a huge success that inevitably there was going to be a sequel. Shall we talk about the sequel? (laughs) Yes. The sequel was entitled Too Fast, Too Furious, with the number two in the title, not the actual two, because not only can they not write a script very well, they're also keen to be grammatically incorrect. (laughs) This is a terrible, terrible, (laughs) terrible movie. I've looked online to see if anyone's got anything to say in its defence, and there are some people saying, oh, it's really good fun, and it's all glossy and shiny. It's rubbish. Shut up. It's rubbish. (laughs) They wanted to bring back Vin Diesel. Vin Diesel reportedly turned the offer down because he didn't think the script was good enough. Sidebar, Vin Diesel was right. (laughs) They gave Tyrese's Roman Pierce in his place a childhood friend of Brian O'Connor's who is just out of jail. Uh, Brian O'Connor is not working for the FBI anymore. He is doing things where he can still buy an Arthur 34 Skyline and have it tuned up with (laughs) neons and steam that explodes out of the side of it when he's pulling through crowds. So he's got some money. He's got three and a half grand he can use to spend on kicking it a nickel at the street race he gets invited to by Ludacris making his first appearance as Tej. This was directed by John Singleton. The first film was directed by Rob Cohen. The reason that not only did Vin Diesel turn this down because he didn't think the script was any good, but he and Rob Cohen were making Triple X at the time and they he I think they thought they could go and spark another franchise. And Triple X is a bit like the Fast and the Furious squared in terms of of silliness and and it's less charming so they brought in john singleton to direct this this sequel and he doesn't have the love of cars he makes it just this kind of day glow miami sideshow all the cars are extraordinarily bright neon coloured. Everything is colour coded. All the cars blow neon flames during the street races. And the neon flames, importantly, are colour coded to the cars. It takes the whole street racing as a party that somehow doesn't get broken up by the cops. Apparently, all you need to do to close an entire course around Miami is put a couple of road closed signs down and that will magically grant you completely free access to all of the roads around downtown Miami. 
So it starts with a street race. Brian, who is not a cop now, but still has access to funds to buy an R34 Skyline and tune it, as we were saying, is invited along to this street race, comes along, invites everyone to kick it a nickel, which is street racing talk for let's make some money on this, puts three and a half grand that he has, even though he says he doesn't have any money and really needs the money. Yet they all pull out loads of money and give it to Tej and then they have a race. And the race footage in this is, it's it's like he went, you know that bit where the Millennium Falcon jumps to hyperspace? I want that, but in multicolours for cars. So anytime anyone stabs a NOS button here, and everyone stabs NOS buttons here, they all kind of get pushed back in their seat and straighten their arms and go, oh, like they've no idea what it is they've just done, even though they're <laughs> the ones that just pushed the button. And presumably they knew that they had NOS connected to the under end of that button. And so you get this ridiculous kind of stretching of the aspect ratio and kind of coloured streaks follow the cars along, and it all looks bloody awful. Can we also talk in that first race? Sorry, I keep interrupting you. Can we also talk about both the eye acting? Because, my God, it's like they've tried to do Raging Bull and mucked it up entirely. There's a lot of, like, sideways glances before anything happens. And the car acting. Like, so many people just drive with their arms outstretched. Yeah, that's a symptom of Fast and Furious across all of the movies. Watch Vin Diesel drive the Charger. He always has... He, he drives it like a bro with one muscly arm <laughs> at the top of the steering wheel. Yes. Because that's how you show off your bro arm, because you did not skip arm day. <laughs> they all but do it. I think do- Paul Walker doesn't do it. But there, there is that very much straight ahead, and they make big darting steering movements, and, you know, the, the smashing the of constant the foot. constant steering yeah, wobble. The smashing of the foot onto the clutch and the accelerator. There's no mechanical sensitivity here. It's punch... The, the clutch down, smash a gear shift through, and then punch the accelerator to the floor. You don't see. There's no heel and toe. There's no standing on the brakes. There's just. It's. It's also. It's meant to be sort of snappy, actiony, cutty, but it's just crap. When they go round corners, you'd expect them to to try and make it interesting. And okay, this is pre Tokyo Drift, but you'd expect a bit of sideways action, a bit of drifty, drifty. Nope. Nothing. They bounce around the corners like they've got the shock sets too stiff and there's too much understeer and they kind of creep <laughs> around this corner and then it's back to the straight ahead, straighty, straighty bit where they change through their infinite gear gearbox. This That first street race is, is pretty much the whole film summed up. It's big and dumb and loud and stupid. So a couple of things that, again, cribbing entirely here from Craig Lieberman, go watch his videos. The view about the cars was that the cars needed to be bigger and they needed to be better than the last film. And if you take um, Suki... Is it Suki's? Suki's uh, S2000. Yeah. So West Coast Customs were actually brought on to do things like the audio installs, to do the graphics, to come up with the body kits and stuff like that. And it is supposed to be all kind of heightened. In fact, actually, a couple of the S2000s from the first film, the spare stunt cars and stuff were repainted to go to become the the cars in this film and there's a scene later on where there's tons of cars streaming out of a warehouse a lot of those are actually cars from the first film that have just been repainted so there'll be like a super in there that's no longer orange and a civic that's no longer black and things like that also they have a brief shot of the propane tanks that were in one of the boots of the S2000s um, my God, they've basically got, I think they've got a fuel cell, two Cala gas bottles, like behind the each rear light cluster, and an electronic ignition circuit to um, light the flames. And that's how they did those neon flames. God. Yeah. Which, I mean, it looks incredibly dangerous I, as well. It would do. Um, going back to this, the idea is that they bring in Tyrese to replace Vin Diesel and Roman Pierce has the similar kind of uh, has a more buddy buddy relationship with Brian O'Connor and that kind of works Tyrese is a bit abrasive in his on-screen presence he seems to spend an awful lot of his time yelling ha 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 and not being especially engaging however he 
and Paul Walker do kind of have a good buddy double act going on once they get past mm-hmm. some of the initial the initial scripty crap. That works. <laughs> some of the plot. Yeah, that works, and you can see why they brought him back for Fast Five because his kind of motor mouth act and kind of becoming the butt of all the jokes works really, really well. Um, it's interesting. I do like seeing... I, I mean, did enjoy re-watching this to see how the characters got rapidly evolved. So Tej in this is far less a mechanical genius and more a grifter who is making a bunch of illegal money and laundering it through his garage. He doesn't seem to do any work on any of the cards. He doesn't demonstrate any of the computer hacking skills or safe cracking skills that he shows in later movies. <laughs> He's not the kind of wry, aside generating, laugh gaining machine that he is in some of the later movies. I really enjoy him. He's one of my favourite characters in the later movies because he's <laughs> one of the only ones going, hang on, this is insane. And he gets some really good lines. In this, he doesn't really. He's just there to be sexist at Suki uh, and wear a ridiculous kind of clean pomp boiler suit. Mm. There is a bunch of crappy car chases in this. There's no car action that's worth speaking of, apart from one shot at the end of that first race where Paul Walker practiced doing drifts in his skyline, which somehow must have had the front wheels disconnected from the super complex (laughs) four-wheel drive system. He does a lovely drift at the end where he wins the race and comes in sideways and clearly has a bit of bar on where he's got his hand on the handbrake. And that shot, of all of the shots of all of the cars in the whole movie, that shot is the only one that looks really cool because it was done for real. And you see the car drifting and the camera comes down to the open window and it's Paul Walker in the car and you can tell he's just done that. And that sells Mm. the coolness and his skill far more than any of the other CG crap in the whole movie. Yeah, It's not worth watching the whole movie for just that. (laughs) The other thing I will say is I remember watching this when it came out uh, with my housemate at the time and we both could not believe how homoerotic this movie was. It's got... (laughs) Tyree's taking his top off for absolutely no reason to smash a window in when the car door is open and he is unfeasibly ripped. Brian appears in a towel and topless and he's unfeasibly ripped. And there is a moment where I'm fairly sure somebody says, one character says to the other, I've got something for your ass. <laughs> it's a bromance taken just that that little bit too far that you feel like, yeah, I know that you've got Eva Mendes in there and she is unfeasibly hot, but realistically it just feels like you two want to get a room. And they moved <laughs> away from that as well in the in the in the subsequent movies, they went back to Mia Toretto and Brian being a thing and bringing all the people back. I don't recommend rewatching Too Fast, Too Furious. What you might want to do is seek out the YouTube clip Everything Wrong with Too Fast, Too Furious in 18 <laughs> minutes or less, which will give you a far funnier commentary than I can bring myself to give about why this movie is crap. <laughs> but you'll get some of the scenes, you'll get a flavour for the movie. It's it's no surprise that in virtually every ranking of the Fast and Furious franchise, including Empire's somewhat controversial ranking for me, this movie is last. You can skip Too Fast, Too Furious. It's crap. There are some cool cars in it, but they're not the ones that you'd think. There's a BMW E36 3 Series Coupe, which is kind of cool. That crops up. There is a Dodge Viper SRT10 that is in one of the, the, the races when they're racing to become a street racer for a drug lord there's a lot of drug lords in the early (laughs) fast and furious movies there's a lovely ferrari 360 spider which gets has its window ignominiously smashed there's a 355 spider there's i I really like the idea of suki's s2000 if they took all of the body kit off and the graphics (laughs) and just left it be a pink s2000 i think that's pretty cool uh we're not going to talk about the awful Mitsubishi Eclipse that Roman Pierce drives. And we're not going to talk about the horrid turd green Lancer Evo that um, Brian drives. I do like his skyline, even if they have disconnected the front drive shafts. That is actually Craig Mm. Lieberman's own personal car that he loaned to the production and that they did jump off that bridge and it did get smashed to pits. (laughs) I would not want to have been watching somebody jump my car off of a bridge, even if I'm being paid for it. That's got to be very painful. Um, Mm. And there's some other fun stuff in there. There's an RX-7. There's a Supra I see sneaking around there. There was a Saline, which was actually, I think, a, a, a replica that gets smashed and has a truck roll over the top of it. 
<laughs> so there's they they've clearly, like you said, Greg Lieberman's telling them interesting, cool cars to use, but they're focusing on the two hero cars and they're just there to look interesting but not actually be any good at all. Um mm. yeah, there's there's plenty of things wrong with it. Go watch that video. You know, we've we've watched this so that you don't have to. Um Next time we do these, and it might not be the next pod episode, but the next the next part of this series, it's going to be Tokyo Drift and then Fast and Furious 4, which was called Fast and Furious, confusingly, just leaving off the definitive article. Shall we move on to what Henry Catchpole has been up to this week? Yes, because Henry Catchpole has been wearing some dreadful red trousers. <laughs> And Sorry. also driving an Aston Martin Goldfinger DB5. Uh, I have actually watched this um, because before we were recording this, my computer decided it wanted to restart, and so I had to wait for it to finish resetting itself and installing software updates. So I had time to watch Henry Catchpole driving Aston Martin's... Uh, what do they call it? The, the department that makes these? The well, continuation it, department? Well, it's Aston Martin Works who do all the sort of the bespoke stuff. But this is a... I think this is an Aston Martin DB5 Goldfinger continuation car. That's right. So this is a car that is a more or less exact replica, except a bit better, of the movie screen-used cars, of which there were two with all the gadgets fitted, from the Goldfinger movie. Um, and... Aston will now sell you one for three something million. Uh, I think they've all sold already. None of them are road legal, uh, but somehow Henry Catchpole has been able to drive it on roads to some Bondian type settings, try out all of the gadgets. And uh, it's a really fun watch. It gives you a sense of why people love this car. I'm on the record for not being an Aston Martin DB5 fan, but watching this particularly watching it filmed in you know like high definition 4k with the very best cameras and lenses and the absolutely stunning work that you always get with a henry catchpole movie it makes you see i mean the, the workmanship of the car is second to none and because this thing is brand new it's as clean underneath as it is outside it looks gorgeous the silver birch paint looks lovely i'm i was watching it thinking i wonder what that would look like on the modern vantage or on a you know v8 vantage <laughs> or something like that and uh, you know the, the the craftsmanship for just re- creating a new db5 effectively is is beautiful the execution of all of the the gadgets including a removable roof panel for a non-existent <laughs> ejector seat which is a nice touch you can't have an ejector seat but you can have the panel and you can have the switch that you have to flip the top off of the gear lever to do it it's all fascinating stuff and they do there is a tiny bit of background behind the scenes on how some of those gadgets work which i found very interesting mm. um but yes a, a a good video, not my favourite of Catchpole's work from this year, but entertaining nonetheless. Yeah. And while we're talking about YouTube, my pick for this week is one that kind of caught me a little bit by surprise, which is probably why I've included it. In a previous episode, and when Al Clark was talking to us on the Intermission podcast... He talked about the Hoonigan Autofocus channel that Larry Chen does. Now, Larry, for those of you who don't know, uh, takes photographs for Speed Hunters, for all sorts of publications. He was one of the official photographers at Pikes Peak. He's done Formula D. He actually does um, uh, workshops with Canon in the US. And what this... The, the title of this video is, is Jay Leno Details Larry's R32 GTR, which he does. However, what I really loved about this video, Larry obviously knows Jay. They work together a lot. And it's Larry walking around Jay's garage. And not just the bits that you see on camera, not just the nice bits, but the bits where they've got the project waiting to happen, where they've got the spares stashed, where they've got all these different spaces. And he goes and talks to Jay. And is a Jay Leno that you don't see very often, in as much as he's not the Jay Leno that's on. This is him just talking to his buddies. This is him just talking about regular car stuff. And it, the whole thing, Larry is great. He's hugely knowledgeable. 
and he's a very passionate car guy. This is him talking with Jay, the car guy, and just talking about the differences between low mileage cars and ones that are well used and well serviced. Or, you know, you see Jay Leno check the tire pressures in his GT uh, Carrera GT before he drives home. It's a lovely look behind the Jay Leno's garage channel. And it's not even about his channel. It's behind that facade. It's behind the polish. It's just a really nice way of seeing the garage, seeing Jay. And yeah, it's just this kind of sweet little bit of automobilia that wouldn't have existed without YouTube. Because if this was broadcast TV, they'd never have broadcast it. It's it's not the polished finish article. It's just a fun little car nuggety thing and in a similar vein my channel pick for this episode is tire reviews that's and weird you know what you're this i would have never heard of this until saturday when at my rally day a friend of mine said hey do you watch that tire reviews channel and i went no and and <laughs> Yeah, you know, he said, "Yeah, you should totally check it out. It's it's really good." And I thought a whole YouTube channel dedicated to testing tires—that sounds frightfully dull, but <laughs> it's not. Well, the, so the guy behind it, so the channel is an offshoot of TireReviews.com, and the guy behind it, John Benson, I actually met him at a Michelin event about ten years ago now, something like that. Um. And he just lives and breathes tyres. He also has the benefit that he's a really good driver. He has a really good sense of that kind of test driver thing, of being able to feel what something's doing and be able to verbalise it. And he's good on camera. And he's kind of got this niche where if you look through the Tire Reviews channel, which is kind of an offshoot, and they've only done sort of 50-odd videos um, most of which have been in kind of the last sort of couple of years or so. But there is stuff in there like what's the difference between, uh, I think, a, a Pilot Sport 4S, a super, uh, cup tyre and a slick? What's it like driving a supercar on winter tyres? What's a great everyday tyre? What's the difference between this and this? What's the difference between a run flat and a non-run flat? There's lots and lots of things where he will go through and he'll do the back-to-back testing. He will answer the questions that you've kind of gone, I wonder what this is. I mean, just looking through now, do wider tyres give more grip? And he's gone and tested it back-to-back between different cars. Again, it's one of those things that you need somebody who lives this stuff, and John does, who can talk about it and do the, the work, if you like, of being able to understand it, which he can, and he can come up with tests that are interesting. So this isn't just like, you know, here's a review of the Kumo A2R, you know, city tyre for whatever. This is like, you know that question you've always had about tyres? It's like, well, what is the difference between driving a slick and driving a performance tyre? You know, what actually is it like to do this? What is the difference between a really, really cheap tyre and a really, really expensive tyre? He goes through all this stuff. And again, it would not exist without YouTube and without the internet. And I think if you gave this to any other car journalist who kind of dips into this world now and again, it wouldn't be as good. And I have huge respect for John. He's a great bloke. He's great at what he does. He's knowledgeable. And you can scroll through. You will find a video that interests you. And you'll learn something. And I think that is a great thing in this day and age. Sounds good. So I'm going to have to give that a watch. I have looked at the channel. I haven't subscribed to it, but it does sound if you are the kind of nerd that we are uh, and care about (laughs) the four black things that connect your car to the road, then do give the Tire Reviews channel a watch. I have a slightly more commercial video, but then maybe not. Um, I've chosen the Remembering Jochen Rint video, which was made by the Formula One video organisation. It was played at the Italian Grand Prix TV broadcast, and it's just a really nicely done telling in six minutes of 
Jochen Rind, Formula One's so far only posthumous world champion. Uh, there's a lot of vintage footage, which as usual looks excellent. There's people interviewed about Jochen, you know, contemporary uh, F1 figures, most notably of which right at the end is Sebastian Vettel, who I think says something along the lines of he has a real crush on Jochen Rind, which is a very odd choice of phrase for a man who's married with three children. But I kind of get what he, he means in that Rint has a look to him. He has a superstar look to him. He's forever looking slightly above or to the left of the camera into the distance as if he's seen something you haven't. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a really great little film reminding you of a world champion that you don't get to hear about very often because he lost his life at Monza and he didn't get to grab his crown. Um, so I... It's only six minutes. Do watch it. It's very, very good. Formula One can be a little um, vague on that. Not they can be a little variable on their output. Some stuff is amazing. Some stuff is just a bit too short and soundbitey to really land. But I think they gave this just about enough time. So do watch Remembering Jochen Rint. Uh, and my channel for this week is The Race which used to be Nismo TV back in the day. Um, but yeah, when when a year or so ago, Autosport's new owners decided they were going to close the magazine and jack up subscriptions to like £12 a week or something crazy like that, <laughs> a bunch of the very well-respected journalists who were working at Autosport at the time clearly all decided to go freelance and leave and set up this sort of rival publication called The Race. And they have taken over what was Nismo TV's YouTube channel, and renamed it to The Race. And they are publishing all sorts of great stuff on here. So they not only have the live coverage of Super GT, for example, but because they're mostly F1 journalists uh, with with some other subjects covered as well, but there's a lot of F1 in there and MotoGP, Mm. they they've kind of taken to social in a way that Autosport never have. So they do a podcast that's out at the more or less at the end of the Grand Prix, practically reviewing the Grand Prix, they do lots of very short videos that explain you know aspects of races gone past. Um, they've hosted live streams for some of the um, e racing that's been going on during lockdown. Um, I just today I watched a brilliant video breakdown of a massive accident that happened in the F1 race at Mugello on Sunday. Um, where they've actually worked out from all the onboards exactly who caused it and they show everything that led up to the massive crash. Um, so you can kind of get a definitive answer of to, ah, okay, so it's it's a knock-on effect of all these drivers slowing up and speeding down. But they've done it in an eight-minute video explaining it with graphics. Um, you know, that after Sebastian Vettel signed for... Um, Aston Martin, what is currently the Racing Point team, but will be Aston Martin next year. They had a video out there discussing the the risks posed by that. They're they're just doing interesting things with with video as a platform for communicating F1 journalism, mm. um, much like the Formula One are with uh, Will Buxton's Paddock Pass and other and other videos there. Very well respected journalists, Scott Mitchell, Ed Straw, and Mark Hughes, who writes exceptional stuff for both their blog on the podcast and for Motorsport Magazine. Um, so I, I have to recommend if you're a Formula One fan in particular, then it the race is worth a subscribe. There's lots of good stuff there. And you kind of get loads of other racing series like Super Formula. They they cover stuff on there and they have streaming Super Formula races and the Super GT races in Japan. Um, it's a bit niche and, and very nerdy, but if you are an F1 fan, it's really <laughs> worth a subscribe. So yeah, do check that mm. out. And that Definitely. brings us to the end of episode 30 of the Automovie podcast. If you have any thoughts on what we've been talking about, if you think that Too Fast, Too Furious is by far and away the best (laughs) instalment in the franchise, then please get in touch with us at Automovie Pod on Twitter and tell us why we're all idiots. But for now, we are going to bid you farewell and I think we're all off to go and live our lives a quarter mile at a time. 